Good morning. So good to see you. So good to be with you, church. I'm going to be honest. I would not have picked this text three days away from Christmas. Uh, it was assigned. That said, let me ask you a question that I asked myself multiple times this week as I, as I prepared and as I was in this chapter. What on earth does this passage in Isaiah, which we've been in for all of Advent and will continue to be in through the end of the year, both Tuesday and then the last Sunday in December, what on earth does this passage in Isaiah on Jerusalem have to do with Christmas? My answer is everything. And I want to spend the next 35 minutes trying to convince you that I'm right. So I'm going to give you three points this morning, no surprise. Sometimes I lay them out ahead of time, sometimes I don't, just depending on the mood. So let me give them to you now. First, we're going to look at the burning torch. Secondly, the light of the world. And finally, bride city. It's a strange third point, isn't it? So first, let's look at the burning torch, which is what Isaiah starts out with here in this enigmatic but rich uh, chapter here, the burning torch. So he gives, first the good news, there's some astounding promises that the prophet here, 700 years before Jesus, give or take, gives to Jerusalem. Verse one, for Zion's sake, Zion is, it, it is another word for Jerusalem at the same time, it's, it's, not, it, it's not the word Jerusalem, so there's a bit of different semantic freight and meaning that comes along with it throughout the scriptures, but for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. And he goes on to say that all nations will see this, will see the righteousness and the salvation of Jerusalem. Um, so this Hebrew word translated torch here is used only four times in the Hebrew Bible or what we more often call the Old Testament. It's used only four times, pretty rare word. The first time it's used, and the first time a word is used is often, every time it's used is important, but the first time is often really important. It's sort of seminal. Um, the first time that it's used in the Hebrew Bible is Genesis 15, where God cuts a covenant with Abram, and he passes God himself in a theophany, an appearance, passes between these animals that he has Abram, his servant, cut, kill, cut in half, and divide. And he puts Abram off to the side. You're not involved in this. I'm going to make this amazing promise to you. I'm going to bless the world through you, and you're going to do nothing. You're going to sit there, and it literally says a deep sleep, just to emphasize the point. Not only is he on the sideline, a deep sleep fell on him. There's a sense in which it's a dread in God's presence, but God, as a burning torch, a theophany, passes between these pieces, and the Hebrew says, as a smoking or fiery torch, smoking and fiery torch. So this is the covenant where God tells this man who is as good as dead, because he's so old, who's off on the sidelines watching God do this and literally asleep, through my word, I will make from you a people as numerous as the stars. Through you, every family all the families of the earth, rather, to use the exact language. All the families of the earth. In other words, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all the families of the earth through you, Abram, are gonna be blessed. The second occurrence out of the four is in Judges, where Samson ties torches to foxtails. Okay, so that's, there's nothing there. That's just, <laughs> that's just a torch that Samson 
is using to once again wreak havoc among the Philistines, okay? Set their crops on fire. Nothing there. You can't win every time. The third occurrence of the four is here in Isaiah, which I've just read, which we just read together, which Sarah and actually Justin read as well. I love that Justin uh, thought that we, that the assigned text is actually verses six through 10. And I love that he's like, man, the whole chapter needs to be heard. It's so good. So he read the first five verses, which I also thought, and I'm gonna preach the whole, the whole chapter. So, um, but where it says, Jerusalem's righteousness will go forth as brightness and her salvation as what? As a burning torch. And then finally, the, the fourth and final occurrence is in Zechariah. A little longer passage here. I think it's important. He's a minor prophet. And Zechariah 12, verse six says this and following. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah, 12 tribes, 12 clans. One of them, the fourth son of Leah, one of the wives of Jacob, is, uh, is the, tribe, the, the son of Judah and from him come the clan or the tribe of Judah. Okay, on that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, of wood, like a flaming, here's the word, torch among sheaves. So I'm gonna make this clan in particular. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place. There's Jerusalem again, in Jerusalem. Messiah, Jesus, as some of you know, comes from which tribe? The tribe of Judah, the fourth tribe, not the first tribe, uh, not the most prominent tribe, the tribe of Judah. Okay, Messiah is going to come. That's clearly prophesied elsewhere in the Old Testament from the tribe of Judah. Zechariah goes on to say in the next verse, 12.7, Zechariah 12.7, and the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the, inhabit- the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And finally, Zechariah 12, 10, and I will pour out on the house of David, and David is from the tribe of Judah, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, get this guys, so that when they look on me, who's speaking? God speaking on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Wow. That is, there is a lot wrapped up into that strange and wonderful prophecy. What's the point? This word as it's used here, torch, burning torch, seems to point toward a fulfillment through covenant where God's gonna do all of the keeping and we, through Abraham, are gonna do none of the keeping of that covenant. We're simply going to hear God's promise, how he's going to bless all the families of the earth through Abram and we're gonna believe that promise. We're gonna hear his word and see his word and we're gonna believe on that word. Okay, this, this word, burning torch, seems to carry a lot of that freight with it. Um, it's specifically to do with the covenant but also with the tribe of Judah specifically through a Messiah who will come from that tribe and be pierced as God himself. And through that piercing will what? Now we're at this text, sin, salvation, and righteousness speeding forth from where? From Jerusalem, like a blazing torch. Sound like anything? Okay. 
Let's fast forward 50 days from the cross where our Messiah outside of the walls of Jerusalem takes all these prophecies into himself and fulfills them at the cross where he, God Almighty, come to live with us as we sang about in these past songs, come put on flesh, come to be us, be one of us, come to represent us as a man and then did something that only God was capable of doing, took all sin upon himself, was crucified, paid the price for it, and was buried. And then he rose again three days later. Fast forward 50 days from that day to Acts chapter one. We have 120 disciples doing what Jesus told them to do. I mean, he had risen. He had, he had met with over 500 of them, some of them individually, like his brother and like Peter who needed to be reconciled to him after denying him three times. But their tendency would have been to scatter across Jerusalem and Israel and the known world, perhaps. Um, but he says, go to Jerusalem and stay there. Stay there and wait until you're what? Clothed with power from on high, right? So we find 120 disciples huddled. Now he met with 500. Well, I heard somebody recently say, where were the other 380 Interesting question. How productive were, and this is a sidebar, this is sort of a promotion of one of our core values, our, maybe our chief value, it's number one on the list, prayer. Think about how we wanna be productive so often for Christ and his kingdom when we go off in our own strength and we just kind of like chickens with our head cuts off or with our own plan, and it seems great, but in our own strength maybe. These were told to go and wait, something that seemed super counterintuitive. Go and wait in the lion's den where I was crucified, Jerusalem where all the religious leaders are that crucified me. Go wait there, go wait in prayer. 120 of those 500 did. Can you imagine the difference in productivity between the 380 and the 120 that waited there? So they're waiting in prayer in the upper room in Jerusalem, and then chapter two of Acts, what happens? The Holy Spirit of God falls on them. How, in what sort of form? Fire, like a blazing torch, like tongues of fire. And in that day, 300, get 3,000, excuse me, get saved. 3,000 move from, and I'm using language at the end of Isaiah 62 here, or in, in verse four rather, 3,000 move in one instant. Those who have pierced him, who have seen him pierced, right? They're wailing, they're mourning, they're being told that actually this was the mechanism God is using to save you. And 3,000 in one day move from forsaken to married, Isaiah 62, four. From, in verse 12, desolate, truly, you can't, friend, you can't get more desolate than crucifying the Son of God. They move in one instant from desolate, believing on Christ as their substitute, to redeemed. Verse four, you're no, you'll no longer be called forsaken, and verse eight, I will no longer give, you, give your grain to be food for your enemies. This is all the good news about Jerusalem. The bad news is that this didn't come true for the city of Jerusalem, these prophecies. And we know that God's word is true. Um, you think about Jerusalem from this moment forward under the dominion. First of all, they were exiled to Babylon. Then they were sent back through the king, by the king of Persia. They were under Persian rule, which is fairly gracious at the time. But then, then they were under Greek rule, um, and you had the Maccabees revolt and establish uh, a little uh, a kingdom, a Jewish kingdom underneath 
Grecian rule, and then you had Rome come in in 63 BC, and then in 70 AD after Christ was crucified, one generation later, later what, did, what, did, what happened to Jerusalem under the rule of Titus, the Roman emperor, um, in 70 AD? What happened to Jerusalem? What happened to the temple? Destroyed, raised, burned and tossed and bulldozed, as it were, to the ground. Not one stone left on another. And the wailing wall is really the only standing thing that we have that remains of that original structure. Um, so the bad news is that this didn't come true, or did it? That's my question before we move to point two. What if, what if this Jerusalem, um, what if Jerus- this Jerusalem isn't the capital city uh, of Judah? What if it's something more? What if the Jerusalem that Isaiah is prophesying about here is something more than that actual geopolitical city that we think about when we say Jerusalem. So I wanna to move to point two, the light of the world. Um, back to these promises that are sort of encapsulated in and thrust upon us in this beautiful way um, and promised to Jerusalem in Isaiah 62, one through three, your righteousness and salvation shall go forth like a burning torch to the nations. I wanna take a step back and look at history I want to step back and I want to look at history with that question in front of you as an hourglass, but an hourglass on its side, okay, turned over on its side. So you have a thick part here and then it tapers to the middle and then it shoots thick out thick again. And I want you to think of all of history as funneling into the middle of that hourglass, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and then from the middle of that hourglass, shooting outward again to all the nations. So I wanna talk about that. And as I do, as I speak of these things and take you on a sort of crash course through history with this hourglass on its side in our heads, I want you to think about darkness and light. I'm trying to keep with the image here that's given to us by Isaiah, okay? I want you to think in terms of darkness and light and I'm gonna help you, but I want you to focus first on the darkness. God made all things. Think about the beginning of the hourglass. It's wide. That's the way the Bible starts. He made all things. He created all things and they were good. And that's the, about as wide as you can get. God, in the beginning, God created. That's about as wide as you can get. God and everything else. But then quickly, that is ruined, essentially. But it also, it also tapers, starts to taper fairly quickly from all creation, where God, at the, at the pinnacle of his creation, he made us, man and woman, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, to rule over his creation as his image bearers. But they rebel against him and go their own way. And under, because all things in creation are under their rule, all things are also uh, fragmented and, and, um, and ruined under their rule. And so Adam brings in, and Eve, they bring in through their rebellion, darkness. And you see how that escalates within a few chapters in Genesis 3, where they rebel in the garden, and then 4, you move from Adam, who is ashamed of what he's done, and he's hiding, to Cain, who's, who kills his brother. And then he starts to talk back to God when God says, what have you done? And he's like, I'm not my brother's keeper. What, you're gonna punish me? And then we move from Cain to Lamech, also in Genesis 4, still that same chapter, okay? Or, yes, still Genesis 4. Lamech is a descendant of Cain, and he's heard about what Cain has done, but he's actually made it into something wonderful in his mind. And he said, hey, he, makes, he kills a boy for basically like punching him in the shoulder or getting in his way, annoying him. He kills a child. And he makes, not only is he, is he ashamed, he's not ashamed like Adam, he's not uh, talking back to God, he's making a song of boastful pride to his two wives, first instance of polygamy in the Bible. What do you think the Bible thinks about polygamy? 
first instance is Lamech, this despicable character. And every time you see polygamy in the Bible, this is for free too, it creates disaster in the Bible, okay? So Lamech, he's got his two wives and he's killed this boy for provoking him. And he goes and he makes a song out of it, of boastful pride. And he says, if Cain was avenged, so now in his mind, Cain didn't do something wrong. Cain was avenged by killing Abel. If Cain was avenged, I'm avenged sevenfold, okay, for this kid that hit me. And he makes, and he's boasting about it. Things slide so fast and so far that by two chapters later, Genesis 6, the whole world is so in rebellion against God that God says, every single heart has been against me except for the heart of Noah. And for the sake of Noah, and his, I'm gonna save his family, eight people, and I'm gonna wipe the rest out with a flood. And we see that happen. So again, think darkness, think darkness. Then you talk about tapering. We get to Genesis 12, and God pulls one man out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of Babylon, walks him across the Fertile Crescent to the land of Palestine, into Canaan. And he shows him this land, he says, through you, you're very old, but through you, I'm going to bless every family of the earth. Um, and he, he gives him in answer to this amazing promise where he's gonna recreate all things through Abram. He gives him, at 100 years old, one boy, one kid, and he, the child of promise, Isaac. And he then, later on, when Isaac is older, asks Abram to sacrifice that child. I mean, you talk about, what, from our perspective, what seems like a tenuous thread Darkness is everywhere, and the promise for the renewal of all things is coming through this one kid that he says, put on the altar. So, so, but God, God is continuing to move, but there's a ton of darkness around. So then from Isaac comes Jacob, and Jacob's a deceiver, and his life up to having these 12 boys and through having these 12 boys is just a mess. It's an absolute mess. It's like, really? The hope for the world is rest is coming through this guy? So Jacob, the deceiver, has 12 sons, and... Um, the 12 tribes come from him. He actually has more than 12 sons. He has 13. Um, and through him come the 12 tribes. And then they grow in massive number. And they're down in Egypt at this point because they've escaped because of famine down to Egypt. And so then um, they are threatened by Pharaoh and he's trying to extinguish them from the face of the earth. So God takes a man and he puts him out in the wilderness, Moses. And how does he appear to Moses. Moses is age 80 toward the end of his, what he thinks is the end of his life. My life's over. And how does God appear to him? In a burning bush, in a blazing torch, as it were. He appears to him and he says, go to my people. I'm going, I want you to tell Pharaoh, set my people free. And so he does, through Moses, he brings the host of slaves, his people, out of slavery, out of the iron furnace, and he puts them in their land. And fast forward very quickly um, he sets up the monarchy through his servant David, who has Solomon, and there's a golden age of Israel, but quickly Solomon sows the seeds of exile, and from Solomon onward, all the way through the last prophet of the Old Testament, there's great darkness, there's a slide toward exile, there's rebellion, um, and our hopes, the hope of the world rests on this promise to Abraham that's gonna be given through the 12 tribes, specifically through Judah, but we see that Israel has failed. Israel has failed. The law has crushed the people. We cannot measure up to God through law keeping. We can't do it. And so we see this funnel. And then the last prophet says, you will be judged, but he brings them back from exile. Um, and he says, I'm going to keep my promise that I gave to Abram. I'm gonna restore all things. But then there's four centuries of silence. After the remnant returns and the last prophet we have this small and tenuous thread and we have four centuries 
a silent waiting under foreign dominion. Like I said, Persia and Greece and the Maccabees and then Rome's iron dominion from 63 BC. And then in 4 BC, after four centuries of silence, a light pierces the darkness. A child is born. And how how does John couch the coming of this one from the tribe of Judah, this Messiah? He says, the light of the world came, he stepped into darkness. He came to his own people, and what did they do? They rejected him. He came to his own people, the light of the world, and they were to be the light of the world, but under the law, they, it just, they could not do it. And so they actually so hated the light that they crucified the light. Um, they rejected him, and they crucified him on a Roman cross, And for a moment, it seems like that light's been extinguished. Darkness, complete darkness over the face of the planet. But no, as we know, the reason that I'm up here, the reason that we're a people, the reason that we're together now, the reason that we've been placed here and called to such a time as this, on the third day, that crucified Messiah rises with healing in his wings, okay? 50 days later, we have Pentecost and 3,000 are born in one day. Isaiah 66, 8, so a few chapters later, the last chapter in Isaiah, he says that in one day a people will be born, a land will be created in one single day. Isaiah 62, our chapter B, says you will be called by a new name. So you've been thinking of darkness so far, now think of light, think of light. G.K. Chesterton in a book that I've mentioned before, The Everlasting Man, he describes the Punic Wars two or three centuries before Jesus, the the wars between Rome the empire of Rome, and Carthage. Actually, it was a republic then. So the Roman Republic and Carthage. And he talks about a bunch of stuff, but one of the things he says is that if Carthage had won, and Carthage almost did win under Hannibal, if, Carf- if Carthage had won, the Mediterranean and the known world would have looked a lot different. Child sacrifice was massive to Molech under the Carthaginians, and they were just a much darker, much darker people. The, Ro- the Romans, were no, were no, they, weren't, they were no powder puffs quite the contrary, but, but Carthage was a dark people of dark magic, and uh, that would have cloaked the known world, and it almost happens, but it didn't happen in God's providence. Rome won, and through Rome, you hear about the Roman roads, and there are still Roman roads today. If you go to Rome and Italy that you can walk on, um, the Appian Way and other, other roads, the Roman roads were amazing, and they provided arteries throughout the empire as Rome conquered, um, and the Roman law Rome, Rome, the Romans were known for their law, created a sense of order, um, even through violence. And owing, uh, during the, Punic, the time of the Punic Wars, two centuries before Jesus came, three centuries, owing to Alexander the Great, who conquered all the way from Greece to Persia, or to India, really. Um, owing to him, you had something happen called Hellenization, which is that the Hellenes were the Greeks, which means that Greek culture and Greek language spread throughout that entire area, throughout the whole known world. So language does what? It connects. So it allowed all these places to connect. And you have the Roman roads, and you have Roman law, and the whole world speaks one language, right? Greek. This is the time period, okay, in the fullness of time, as we sang earlier, as one late born. This is the time period into which Christ stepped, into which this son of Judah, this son of David, in God's perfect providence was born. From the burning torch, as the light went out at the cross, the burning torch of his resurrection with healing in its wings, 3,000 saved in one day as the Holy Spirit falls. From this place, 
The sea lanes are safe for travel for the first time in history, probably in the Mediterranean. Roman roads provide safe travel. Traveling was dangerous back then, but it's a lot safer thanks to Rome. Greek is spoken everywhere. From this one place, the new covenant, the gospel of Jesus Christ is recorded and disseminated and goes out like a burning torch with amazing speed into the known world. Israel, think about, think about where Israel is ge- uh, politically. I mean, just geographically rather, I should say. Think about where it is. It's the crossroads of the world. It's the only place in the world where three continents join. Asia, Africa, and Europe. The gospel, Pentecost, the spirit falling like a blazing torch because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, fulfilling all the scriptures, keeping all the law, paying for all the sin penalty that we deserve, happens at ground zero. Um, The gospel from ground zero explodes out from here, and in 30 years, like I said, it's reached the known world. In 300 years, Christianity Christianity becomes the official religion of the empire. Righteousness and salvation have indeed gone forth like a blazing torch. Um, Kenneth LaTourette shows in his gem of a book, The Unquenchable Light, and as my um, doctor my mentor, Dr. Doug Kelly, always says, the history of the church is one of revivals, so there's darkness that comes in. The scriptures stop being understood and looked at even by priests. There's an age, as it were, of religious accretion, and the gospel is almost lost. And then you have glimmers of coming back to that through the Renaissance and the rediscovery of original texts and Islam in the East attacking the uh, Byzantine Empire and pushing all the original Greek New Testament manuscripts of the Greek Orthodox Church West into the Roman Church, okay? You have that happening. And then you have this man called, this monk called, he was a legal scholar initially or a legal student. And then he became a monk and his name was Martin Luder. His father changed the name from more of a, work, less of a working class Luder to Luther, sounded a little more polished in the German. Martin Luther, in his hand, he gets a hold of these texts. He gets a hold of Romans and Galatians in particular, in this, in this age of back to the sources, the Renaissance that has created this environment where he's reading the original Romans. He's reading the original Galatians. He's, doing, he's teaching through the Psalms and he rediscovers, as it were, um, the Gospels. So the light uh, was rekindled in the torch of brilliant salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not through works, surged through Europe and the New World. Um, and then you have the Puritan, dis- the Puritan dissidents who are inheritors of the Reformation and heirs. They colonize the new world because they want to worship God according to scripture and conscience. Um, and, they, and then they form, from that, America's formed. You have the 19th and 20th century revivals. Um, and then you have the century right before ours, right before this one, that we, a lot of us at least were born in, um, although not all of us. You have the 20th century. That was the century perhaps of the greatest contrasts. You had the largest loss of life by far in the 20th century with the two world wars, massive loss of life, but also, by contrast, a massive spread of the gospel around the globe. Um, just, just one indicator of that, and Justin could correct me, I, I did this from memory, but it's, I'm close. Um, Muslim, there are, have been, I think, 14 or 15, I'll say 15 Muslim movements, and a movement involves a massive amount, a certain amount of people being saved in a certain amount of time, Okay. Um, there have been 15 Muslim movements of salvation from faith in Allah in the Quran to faith in Jesus Christ and his saving work alone, okay? Um, in the past 1,400 years of Islam, there have been 15 movements. 14 of those 15 
have happened in the past 20 years. 14 of those 15. Um, there, think about, I know that there's so much darkness in our lives, in our hearts, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our world. You don't, you, all you have to do is, you don't have to read the newspaper. You could just look in your own heart. You can look in your own home. You can look at the homes around you, people's lives falling apart. But if you just open the newspaper, it's easy to see. But at the same time, I wanted to take the time to lay all that out for you to show you the truth of that prophecy 700 years before Messiah came. Think about the fact that there was so much darkness in the earth that Jesus came to his own people and even his own people rejected him. And he died on the cross and the darkness just pervaded. But since his resurrection and then Pentecost 50 days later, think about all the light that is spreading across the globe now by contrast. So much darkness, but also so much light. For the first time ever, this 21st century, as compared to the past two or three centuries, where, which were the centuries of the nation states, which is one of the things that led to the world wars, is the century of the city. In the past two years, I think it was 2008, for the first time in history, more people lived in cities than in the country. And that's just continuing and gonna continue. So this is the century of the city. Um, Seed Company, which is a, an organization that we've, uh, we've supported in the past and we've supported certain language projects, they translate the scriptures into people's heart languages, they have a thing called Project Zero. And for the first time ever, they're saying there are about 1,700 language groups left that don't have any scripture in their language. For the first time ever, we're gonna be able to close that in this generation to zero. We're the only people in history that have been able to say that. And we wanna be a part of that and we're seeing that happen. Salvation and righteousness are blazing forth like a torch from Jerusalem. I want to finish with Bride City and kind of pull this all together. Point three, Jerusalem here in Isaiah 62, if you haven't figured it out yet, it's, well, it's pictured as a bride, clearly. Jerusalem, though, if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm putting forward to you, and I think it's clearly substantiated in this text and in the scriptures, is the church, the bride of Christ. The church is God's people, Jew and Gentile, who look to Messiah, the one who is pierced for us. Let me read, to confirm this, let me read from Revelation 21 toward the very end of the Bible. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the what? Holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared what? As a bride adorned for her husband. And who is the bride? We're told in Ephesians 5 and other places, the bride of Christ is his people, his church, Jew and Gentile who have looked to him. Okay, so Jerusalem is this holy city. It's this bride prepared for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This Jerusalem is God's people who have God in their midst. Actually, this is God's people who, among whom God lives and in whom God lives. They are the very residents of the living God, the Holy Spirit of God. This is what the temple is. And the temple was where? In Jerusalem. Now the temple is in God's people because Christ is the temple and he is in us. In other words, this is the Christmas story. It's our story. It's why Christ came to make a people for himself and to be among those people and to have his righteousness and salvation broadcast to all the earth. 
we are characters who have been given parts, real parts to play in the unfolding drama that has shot out into all the world um, through the darkness as light with Christ at its center as the linchpin. Think about that, that hourglass on its side again. Look where he has placed us in this space and time, in this most international city, perhaps in, this, in the history of the world, in this, one, this spot that might be, it's certainly one of the most international spots in this most international city where the nations are. The nations are here. The church is here. This is our hour. This is our life to live. These 40 years or however old you are, I'm just using a sort of number that applies to most of us that we have left. This place, this, this gathering place for the nations is also a launching pad for the nations. Reach, reach this area, saturate this area with the gospel. Let this area experience the burning torch of the righteousness and the salvation of God in Christ and all the earth will be set ablaze, okay? Because the nations are here. A quick run through some of these verses and, and to a close. Isaiah 62, three, the world will know that God is king by looking at your life and by looking at our lives together. What is said of Jerusalem, of the bride of Christ, of his church, of his people that he lives among? It's said that we will be a crown and a, a diadem is simply another name for something like a crown. We will be a crown to God himself. We will show the world in what we say and in how we live that God in Christ is king. For such a time as this, God has put us here. 62.4, they will be a married people. Again, Revelation 21 that I just read. Um, He is here. He is coming, drawing people to himself, not in a religious sort of keep these laws and and I might let you pass through relationship, but in a relationship that is characterized by the intimacy of marriage. No longer forsaken or desolate, he will call us married. He will redeem us. He will buy us back at great price, the price of his own body and soul. And he will call us to himself in the most intimate sort of relationship we can imagine. This this is why he saved us. This is what he's doing. Um, He taught us to pray and to live on earth as it is in heaven, which we'll pray in a second here together as we take communion. He's called us to invest in this geography and in the way that we preach the gospel through our lives and words um, to see heaven come down to earth, to seek the welfare of this city and of this pocket of the city, of this God's rectangle, um, um, to garden here in this garden that we've been planted in, in this city. And you see that all, as all of history moves from a garden to a city, you see that that's the trajectory of scripture too. All of, all of history started in the garden. It's all moving toward this holy city. And Isaiah gives us a prophecy of that and we see that now and we see our place in that now and it's, it's visible, it's coming to pass. Isaiah 62, six, as we march through this, this um, chapter and then finish, who will we be the watchmen who will not keep silent? This is what God, one other way God characterizes people. I want, I'm, gonna put, I'm gonna make of Jerusalem, of my bride, of my church, of my people, uh, I'm gonna put them on the walls. They're gonna be watching that will not keep silent, that will raise a signal. And what is that signal that we lift? What is that nation, what is that language, that message that we keep on crying out to the nations? The signal that we lift and the message that we preach is that our God loves us so much that he became, he came and, and lived among us and kept the law in our place and died the curse of lawbreakers in our place. The, the message that we proclaim, like Paul said, is the cross. Tim Keller says this, 
He says, the cross shows the upside down nature of divine wisdom. The way up is down. As a mentor of mine says, pursue obscurity. That's not the way the world lives. The way, Keller says, the way to lead is to serve. The way to get happiness is to seek happiness, not for yourself, but for others. The way to be truly rich is to give wealth away, end quote. Because he gave himself away for us um, and for all those who have ears to hear the good news that we proclaim, we give our lives away. And that's how the kingdom grows. And that's how we become a bride city, a city that is literally has God walking among us, drawing us into intimate relationship with him. And then 62.12, Isaiah 62.12, what is our name? This is your name, a holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. We are a humble people. We're a holy people set apart and cleansed of our sin, but we're humble because our identity is not earned it, did it, have the resume, made the grade, got the job, pulling in the income. Have the perfect family, check it out. Our name, our identity is not earned it. Our identity is rather bought and paid for, rescued. That's what God says over us. And so we get to invite people into that. Oh, you are screwed up. Your life is an absolute mess. You have made a complete hash of things. Perfect. You're exactly the kind of person that God came for because we're all that way. And he loves to save sinners. That is the signal that we raise. The cross, the cross. This is the burning torch going forth that has been going forth from Jerusalem for 2,000 years now. Um, a city not forsaken, dreaming a bit, and then, and then I'm done. A city not forsaken, Isaiah says, orphans, gone. Immigrants and refugees, think about our geography. Immigrants and refugees welcomed in to our lives and homes. Sex shops, shuttered. Prostitutes, fiercely fought for and tenderly loved. Prisoners, sought out, pursued, and then brought out and reintegrated. Unwed and single mothers, cared for. Trafficked human beings, fought for freed and cared for. The nations here among us, heralded with the gospel, shown the person of Jesus through the way that we live and how we speak. Um, This Galleria is our liminal space. It is the space we've been given. North of us, um, the message is um, the the idols are image and material. Self-help and self-actualization are the the message. Um, The gospel destroys this. It destroys this. Let's not overlook this demographic, but let's also not overlook the nations on the south side of Westheimer. Let's enter this world. Let's welcome these people. Some of us are those people. You will find Christ among them, and I wanna say if we miss them, we might just miss him. We might just miss him. Let's not overlook either side of Westheimer. This is the space God's given us, and this is our moment, and this is our place in this Christmas pageant. Um, How do I want to close, friends? Let me just close with Isaiah's words. How about that? A story, a very short story, and then Isaiah's words, just three verses. And the story is simply when Robin and I were privileged, privileged to go to Jerusalem, um, for which we're still thankful and want to get back, really fell in love with Jerusalem in particular. Um, 
we went to the Wailing Wall a couple times, and I was just impacted more than anything else at the Wailing Wall, the original piece of the temple that's still standing, um, with the fact that God, we weren't any closer to God there. That is no longer where God resides, because that is not the Jerusalem that's being spoken of here. We, the temple is no longer there. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up again. And he lives inside of us. You are that temple. You are that Jerusalem. And God is choosing to send forth himself in his presence into every area of your life and every place you go like a blazing torch of salvation and righteousness as we hold up the fact that, hey, we were forsaken and now we've been redeemed. Come, come join us. Let me finish with Isaiah's words. Isaiah 62, one, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give Christian church. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Merry Christmas, almost. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your word become flesh, something that even though it was prophesied about, none of us, none of us saw coming. None of us could have imagined. You came to be among us in your plan for the conquest of all things so that your rule would extend over all nations and recreate all things, including us, was to die on a Roman cross. We worship you, the God incarnate, the God who became weak to make us strong, the God who divested himself of all riches and became poor to make us rich. Would you allow us, not through self-effort, but through fixing our eyes on you and on the incarnation and on the real meaning of Christmas and on the cross and on your life and death and resurrection for us, knowing that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through the economy of the cross, would you help us to lay our lives down and give our lives away? That this might be a bride city. That this might be a city in a generation, in part through our part to play in the pageant, Lord. That this might be a city known as a people who are married to the living God through the person of Jesus Christ. They're wiped clean of their sins through the person and work of another, Jesus. Would we lift up that signal? And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.